0: Firefly Willows L-I-V-E presents Evolve, featuring your host, Robin White-Turtle-Lizney.
1: for joining us on this episode of Evolve, Nurturing the New in Consciousness, the Arts, and Culture with your host, Robin white turtle Listening. Evolve brings you people and ideas on the cutting edge of change, opening the shells of the past to move our culture into the now. The arts and evolving consciousness are how we are bringing that change to the culture at large. Evolve brings you the wise, the foolish, and the heart-based to help us meet the challenges of the times we are in. Your host in helping you evolve is Robin White Turtle-Isney, who received her Master's in Fine Arts from Mills College in Creative Writing in 2012 and her PhD in energy medicine in 2013. She is an author of three books, the most recent being Heart Path, Learning to Love Yourself and Listening to Your Guides. She has published poetry in many literary journals and numerous anthologies, and her poem First Step was selected for reading by survivors at the Virginia Tech Memorial Bench Dedication in April 2010. In addition to her writing, Robin is also an artist whose work has been shown widely throughout the Midwest and East Coast. Robin White Turtle Lisney is a psychic medium and energy medicine practitioner through East West Bookstore in Mountain View, California, through her office in Santa Cruz, California, and across the country by phone. Robin travels across the country as a speaker and leading workshops. To find out more about Robin, you can visit her website at www.thecenterforthesoul.com. So take a breath, relax, and let yourself evolve with your host, Robin White Turtle, listening.
2: uh you are are here listening to evolve and this is the radio program that uh talks about the arts and healing and how we can transform our culture through the arts and through things that we do with our own inner selves so uh today my guest is John Fox um, John is a certified poet uh a certified poetry therapist and a poet, and he's um, an adjunct associate professor at California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco. He teaches at J- JFK University in Berkeley, the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology in Palo Alto, and Holy Names University in Oakland. He's the author of two books. One is Poetic Medicine, the Healing Art of Poem Making, and is featured on the PBS documentary Healing Words, Poetry, and Medicine. He presents at medical schools and hospitals throughout the United States and has also presented in Ireland, England, Israel, Kuwait, South Korea, and around the world. John has served as president of the National Association of Poetry Therapy from 2003 to five, and he is the president of the Institute for Poetic Medicine. John, welcome to our show today.
3: Robin, thank you for inviting me to be on.
2: Yeah, it's delightful to have you. So tell me a little bit about your institute and and how this whole thing got started for you because you've been doing this for a while now, haven't you?
3: It's been a while. Yeah. Um, the the institute for poetic medicine was founded in actually more recently in 2005. Mm. And And um, the sort of goal, of the institute or the mission of the institute is to awaken soulfulness in the human voice. Oh. And our, our our call, our vision is to really help to fund projects currently around the United States that use poetry and expressive writing to help people to do that, to awaken soulfulness in their voice. Mm-hmm. And in particular, we're interested in reaching people who are, the word these days is marginalized or perhaps um, not well considered. And to give them a chance to have their voices be heard. Mm-hmm. Just as a, um, a direct example is, for the past two years, we've funded a project uh, led by one of our poetry partners, Krista Wissing,
0: uh-huh.
3: who's an MFT,
0: mm-hmm.
3: um, at, but also um, uh, got a degree in expressive therapies at uh, CIIS where I teach Mm -hmm. and Krista was actually a student of mine about eight years ago and we've stayed in touch and now she's the program coordinator at the Bay Area Brain Injury Network Mm. in uh, Larkspur Mm -hmm. and so when I learned that I I got back in touch with Krista and I asked her if she'd like to lead a project that we'd sponsor for people with acquired or sometimes known as traumatic brain injury
0: Mm -hmm. and
3: so this is the second year we've done Christ has led the rediscovery project
0: mm-hmm. and
3: it's just completing actually mm-hmm. and so we've helped to, to fund that and mm-hmm. and one of the things we'd like to encourage is in this, as things grow that there be other funding sources so Krista has found that for
0: mm-hmm.
3: um like bread for the journey
0: mm-hmm. um
3: helped to fund it and mm-hmm. we also received some funding from poets and writers
2: oh,
3: great. Um, and uh so um and they're going to be, the people who participate in that program are going to be uh, giving a poetry, a public poetry reading at Book Passage in Corona, Madera, California, mm-hmm. next Saturday in the morning at
2: 1030. Oh, how exciting. So,
0: and
3: so, and that's new. Like last year, the reading happened at the Bay Area Brain Injury Network in Larkspur. And so
2: mm-hmm.
3: they're sort of unfolding their wings a little bit more and putting Putting this out into the public, so
2: well, that's fantastic. So the
3: institute funds projects like that, and there's uh-huh. certainly others that we've been we've been helping to support. So um, I have a training program that trains people in the sort of practice of poetic medicine
0: mm-hmm. and
3: poetry therapy,
0: mm-hmm.
3: and we have uh, be an excellent resource center for people interested in how poetry and writing can be applied in healing ways,
0: mm-hmm.
3: and um, so, and then the work that I do uh, around the country or um, actually, you know, abroad also um, is part of the Institute for Poetic Medicine.
2: Uh huh. So, tell me a little bit about that work because you've been all over the world. You've been in Kuwait and all kinds of places. Right. Well, um, tell me about that because that, what is the work that you do with the Institute in terms of how you interact with the audience or the people or do you work in small groups or with large small-
3: large groups? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a big question because there's a broad range of people and applications for this work. Mm-hmm. Um, just for instance, I mean, in terms of the work abroad or, you know, around the planet, um, uh, a woman named Bahare Amidi, um, and if you go to Bahareh, B-A-H-A-R-E-H dot com, you'll learn about Bahare's work in, in the United Arab Emirates. Mm-hmm. And she was Um, already doing work with Poetry and Healing and then put in, I don't know what she Googled, but Poetry Therapy or something, and my name came up and so about two and a half years ago, or maybe almost three now, we made contact and um, Bahare sponsored me going to UAE or United Arab Emirates last December. Mm -hmm. And I really believe, and this may be another question we'll cover, but just the, the art of collaboration and that
0: that's how things happen these days, I think, mm-hmm. in a very effective way. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but Bahare is already had, was
3: doing work in UAE in the, in the labor camps or the safe house at the Indonesian consulate um, where dozens of women go because of, you know, very bad situations that they might have been in. And, mm-hmm. But Bahare has gone there to tell stories and then to work with writing poems as well. And so I was a guest. Of hers, both mm-hmm. at the safe house and the labor camp, working with young men
0: oh. from the sort
3: of you know Kerala area of India uh-huh. who go to um, UA to be part of the building trade, um, but also to learn English. And so the people who teach English as part of that invited us in,
0: mm-hmm. and it's amazing,
3: Robin, to mm-hmm. just to be with these young men, probably in their twenties and thirties, who. <clears throat> One wouldn't immediately think of that be the most optimum group, or the group that'd really be interested in making poems and writing. But they did fantastic,
0: mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. It was very
3: moving actually. To, to just give them one little prompt, we translated a poem into um, Urdu and Hindi,
2: uh-huh. and
3: and when they heard that, they just went with it. Uh-huh. So, so that's one experience in um, in UAE, and then certainly been been some others in South Korea. Wonderful woman, uh, Mrs. So Young. Um, mm-hmm. If you go to Google the Korean Institute for Poetry Therapy, you'd find mm-hmm. out about So Young's work mm-hmm. of bringing poetry to her country. I mean, single handedly in a way. Mm. Well, I shouldn't say, I mean, there's other people for sure. But but she has done beautiful work in mm-hmm. bringing poetry therapy to the people of um, um, Korea,
2: mm-hmm. in this
3: case, South Korea.
2: Oh, marvelous. So I've been there yeah.
0: twice
3: to, yeah. to, to do projects that um, so
2: young has helped to sponsor
0: right great
2: well the the idea of you know poetry is of course worldwide and it's been worldwide especially in the arab world they Mm -hmm. you know we have marvelous poets as you know out of the arab world um you know rumi and kabir and on and on and on and Oh, but but what's wonderful about what you're doing in my estimation that the institute is supporting is showing how healing that this poetry can be with people, and that's the key that I think is is a new thing that um you know the woman in Korea and the woman in the Arab Emirates is doing <laughs> excuse me that um really makes a huge difference for people, so that's pretty exciting to see right.
3: Take that, take that approach. Um, my sense is that um, poetry has always, I mean, for millennia, actually been healing. Indigenous people knew this. Um, and older countries, um, like Greece and China, you know, actually to become a, a physician, this is what I understand from my friends in Chinese medicine, you mm-hmm. have to, st- in the, your first year, study study poetry. Ah. So, so there's a tradition of mm-hmm. poetry as healer, certainly indigenous people yeah. are aware of this. And ancient yeah. cultures like Greece, there's a beautiful phrase in ancient Greece, ancient Greek, called and the word is sophrosyne, uh-huh. and it means beautiful language, mm. sophrosyne, and um, the idea that language could bring integration and stability is what they mean by that that applicant that use of beautiful language to bring mm-hmm. integration and stability. So mm-hmm. so there's these deep roots of of language and of poetry in particular that is like that.
0: You
3: know, we tend to um focus on the sort of literary um really the exquisite literary attributes of poetry, but also it's the fact that it's at least in our country, not um not a big seller I mean there are wonderful poets that do that are and poetry is becoming in fact my experience in the past 20 24 years or so um our country it's had become more um prevalent there's a lot of actually things that are going on that that show this but Mm -hmm. but but the idea of approaching poetry not only from a literary point of view but more essentially point of view and mm-hmm. how we there's something we can talk about about how how that approach maybe is different than a literary approach
2: yeah well let's talk about that because i think um i i know you know i i finished graduate school just a couple years just a year ago and uh uh i brought your book in because i felt like you know these guys, these professors, they need to know about you. They need to know about the possibility of this. And um, it was pretty interesting because my professor was very dismissive. And I was like, well, wait a minute, you haven't even looked at the book. You know, he's like, ah, yeah, so got, it's got to be all literature. So I'd be really interested. And, and you know, after a while, I, he, he did look at the book and talk about it. And, you know, we didn't talk about it in class, but um, he was willing to look at at which I thought was interesting, but there there is a great big disconnect I think in the academic world with healing in in terms of the arts. They totally just don't even want to talk about it. They don't want to deal with it. That's for the psychologists or it's for some other profession. But I think it's so obvious. It was so obvious to me in the critiques what was happening with the students and how they were transforming. Um, just by writing the poetry, if you know, and that that was quite an amazing other students were how going through transformation. Absolutely. They were I was watching, you know, kids that clearly were challenged or young people that were challenged with mental illness or with not everybody in there of course, and some were very sound and very sound of mind and body, but um yeah. you know, you could see the transformations of people by their acts and I have seen that since I was in art school, you know, thirty, forty years ago. So Talk about that a little—the difference between poetry as healing, and the poetry as that literary component that you know we all turn to, like, Gates and so on. I mean, you know, certainly there's that history of poetry, nature poetry in particular. I'm thinking, but right.
0: Well,
3: just this, this field of poetry as healer or poetry therapy, it, it is um, really comes in a very broad way. Hmm certainly um i have been extremely grateful for what we might call professional poets
0: mm-hmm. and
3: and the gifts that they bring to us you know um and and yet i also recognize that writing itself for for you and me for anyone is a lifetime lifelong process however mm-hmm long that life might be given the grace to be.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and having worked with young children, um, particularly in the early part of my career, but still, it's still happening. I just see that there's something more important than, than an adult sort of claiming their turf because of their literary acumen.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
3: like, and it's I can share a little funny story. Um,
0: right that it draws me. Um, the, I wrote a book called What You Didn't Lose in 1995. It was published. It's still in print, right?
3: Finding What You Didn't Lose.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And then I got a... Um, my favorite fan letter I ever got was, was... I remember reading it at the Hobie's restaurant in uh, Mount, in uh, Palo Alto like about 19 early 96 because the, the book came out in 95. But the letter was from a Person in Wisconsin, and it began Dear Mr. Fox, I'm 11 years old and have been writing for a while. (laughs) (laughs) Dear Mr. Fox, I'm 11 years old and have been writing for a while. You know, from her her name, her name was um, uh, Melissa, but um, (laughs) that writing was something she could claim.
1: Mm-hmm. And that
3: it was something that had history for her.
0: Mm-hmm. And
3: you know, when you're 11, like one month is really quite a long time.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And but but then, uh, in contrast to that, meeting a woman in her late 80s who was in a, a group I had at a at a assisted living place in Connecticut, and mm-hmm. everyone else in the group was in their 90s, mid 90s or so. And so this woman, Martha, she was about 86. She was a young kid, kind of. Mm-hmm. And But we were having a great time. Some of the people had some forgetfulness, some special kind of forgetfulness, whether we were call it dementia or Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. And, but just hearing the poems brought a great sense to
0: mm-hmm. their ears, mm-hmm. and
3: I could feel it. I mean, it was actually one of the most sort of, Sometimes you sit with adults and you know they're kind of trying to size you up and get get things figured out.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: It's fine, but but they were just having a good time. Mm-hmm. So so this is a, a little bit of a longer story, but when I moved towards wanting to do a, a writing exercise with this group of people and what it was going to be, I was going to have them write themselves, but I had a, a flip chart or a dry erase board and was mm-hmm. going to write down lines that they said about connections with gardens.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: But... Every time I moved towards that, trying to do that, I or one time I moved towards trying to do that, I could see Martha, this woman in her 80s, who was, um, had her faculties a little bit more, and she pulled back by her body language, and she did not say, Robin, she didn't say, I don't want to write, or it wasn't explicit, but I could just feel that she wasn't into it. And so, But she was there having a, an enjoyable time, so I would just let go of it. And so here's where... Um, the, sort of sensibility, the healing part comes in. And I, mm.
0: and then a little bit later,
3: I thought, well, maybe Martha is a little, you know, maybe we can try this. So mm. I kind of edged towards it, and once again, and it wasn't explicit. This is the thing. It was just sort of the sense I had that she wasn't interested or she didn't want to do it. I wouldn't say, I take back saying she wasn't interested. She mm. didn't want to do it.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: So then, then as the group was about to close, and I wanted to let them know how much I enjoyed being with them, I let them know that, that the group's about to been so enjoyable to be with you. Martha leaned forward and put her her elbows on her knees and said to me and to the group, I want to tell you uh, why I didn't want to write. She said, when I was in third grade, so she would have been eight in third grade, and Mm -hmm. she was 86. Mm -hmm. When I was in third grade, my teacher gave us an assignment to memorize a poem and to bring it in. And at that moment, she stood up. Balanced by her on her walker. She had to use a walker, and her shoulders were back, and her chin was sort of up. And there was a sense of pride that was felt really healthy and very um, strong.
0: Mm-hmm. And she
3: spoke her poem mm. flawlessly. And it wasn't I, too. She, it was a longer poem, and she knew it perfectly. Poem that had, But what I haven't told you is she said when she... Did this in school in third grade, or told her her teacher had told her she hadn't done her the assignment correctly, and her poem would not be included.
2: Oh dear.
3: Well, that oh dear, that that sigh had become a lifelong sense of, and I saw how this image I had for Martha was that very thick pain, but clear glass was between her and her access to her mm-hmm. self-expression.
2: Exactly. Yeah.
3: And and it was, you know, very and i who knows she probably hadn't shared that story with anybody for i don't know seventy eight years but but here I was someone who she felt she trusted and mm-hmm. her peers and and so when I think back to that eleven year old Melissa Ham, was old and been running for a while,
0: mm-hmm. you know how
3: do we treat ourselves and how are we treated in regards to our our creative voice yes and so c- coming back to the dismissive men believe me it's not you know it's no no surprise yeah I mean, that sense that um that because what i i'm aware of is that we need to maintain well let's see how do i want to say this that it's helpful to me in relating to people to remember that vulnerable place right like, where our voice gets smushed or mm-hmm. dismissed early on right Voices like saying that your immune system doesn't matter.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: This writing and healing is being like a another kind of expression of an immune system. Yes. I mean, almost literally speaking, maybe our spiritual immune system.
2: Yeah, that's and, a fantastic idea. You know how how the arts really are a, a a way that we help ourselves build our own inner immune system and our own support system our, internally. Exactly. Yes. And, that sense, an immune system that actually keeps can keep us whole mm-hmm. and help
3: us in that wholeness to discover things that we wouldn't otherwise have
0: known. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean,
3: I can't make this um, a literal link for you, but there's a wonderful researcher, James Pennebaker, at the university. He's retired now, I think, but University of Texas at Austin. In the late 80s and into the 90s, he's doing research into what he called expressive writing. Right. writing and um he
2: um let's pick that up in just a second we're gonna uh, take a break and i'll be right back Now with Evolve, the radio show that looks at evolution through the arts, and my guest today is John Fox. He is the uh, director of the Institute of Poetic Medicine, and the institute offers um, uh, grants to places that are working on projects with various populations. Um, and uh, he is also an author. He's the author of Poetic Medicine, The Healing Art of Poem Making. And he's been featured on a documentary uh, on, in PBS called Healing Words, Poetry, and Medicine. He's presented in medical schools throughout the United States and hospitals, as well as throughout uh, different countries South Korea, Kuwait, Israel, England, Ireland. And he's been uh, president of the National Association of Poetry Therapy. When we left off, John, we were talking about um, the difference between the academic view of literature and how uh, poetry and healing has such a different emphasis. And you gave us the story of this woman who had been wounded for all these years around something she said when she was in eighth grade. And comparing that to a young girl, I wonder... Um, uh, I know that I have found that when I'm teaching with people, that, that sometimes they have to kind of get over their wounding. I, I wonder, I just want to follow up on that question. Sure. Uh, is that, did that woman feel like she broke through something uh, by reciting that to the group?
3: Well, I had to imagine that she did. I, mm-hmm. I was there for, for just a short visit for that one time.
0: Mm-hmm. And
3: so the anecdote of her actually sharing that story with me um and with her peers to me was a, was, was was a healing was a, was a
2: breakthrough uh-huh, uh-huh and
3: she had claimed something for herself
2: right right and
3: i what i feel happens is that um is that as people experience this whether they're 11 years old or 86 right. and they're in a, a a place that um sort of balances both safety mm-hmm. and a sense of deep um receptivity
0: mm-hmm. to their
3: creativity that the healing begins.
2: So part of the healing is um, is people listening and receiving their words. Is that is yeah, that what and you're saying? So,
3: yeah. And be, before one even here's the sort of stepping back a bit, Robin. Mm-hmm. When I was in 11th grade, I, I was had two loves. One, I played the cello,
0: mm-hmm.
3: and I but I wasn't particularly good, but I really loved the cello. But I was also a writer, and mm-hmm. I I decided that I would let go of playing the cello. And go to school to get a degree. They didn't have MFAs back in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. But so I sent my poems to Boston University to the director of of the creative writing program, mm-hmm. at George Starbuck, who had been the director of creative writing at the University of Iowa, which is sort of uh, known as even then I'd done my research knew that was the pre, pre you know.
2: Pre-eminent, Preeminent place to go. Yeah, number one place in so, the country. So George
3: Starbuck had been the director, but he was at Boston University there. And this is the, about 1973. and Sexton was on the
0: mm-hmm. staff
3: there. And oh. so, um, but here I, I was applying to BU, but I sent my poems to George Starbuck when I was like in late and 11th grade, <laughs> which sounds a little overeager. And so here's, here's what George Starbuck did. He wrote back a letter on Boston University Stationery and there's one sentence that I remember and will never forget. He said it takes a long time of getting to know somebody before you can make helpful comments about their poetry.
0: Mm-hmm. And that was
3: coming from a from a from a person teaching creative writing in a yes. program, a degree program right. at Boston University. So what I've taken that sentence and it's been a gr- sort of a gradual process for me getting involved in this. But say, well, what does that mean, mm-hmm. taking a long time to getting to know somebody? Because it's difficult to take a long time to get to know somebody. Mm-hmm. But maybe what I can do is, is listen in a way. Mm-hmm. You brought up listening. Brought up listening in a way that lets me get to know them. Yeah. And lets me them get to know that that's what I'm doing.
2: Right. So, would you read that poem uh, for us of when somebody deeply listens to you? Because that seems to kind of go to the heart of what you were, what right. you're talking about.
3: Right. You're asking me to read this poem that I wrote about 1985, mm-hmm. when I had just started my training with my mentor Joy Sheman
0: mm-hmm. at
3: El Camino Hospital in Mountain View, California. I had found out there was a field called poetry therapy that had a whole training regimen mm-hmm. that I was beginning to take, and but I asked myself, what am I here to learn? What am I here to learn about poetry and healing? Mm-hmm. And this poem came to me one day.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And it goes like this. It goes like this. I'm when I'm someone here. deeply I'm listens to you, it so. is like out the dented cup you've had since childhood, and watching it fill up with cold, fresh water. When it balances on top of the brim, you are understood. When it overflows and touches your skin, you are loved. When someone deeply listens to you, the room where you stay starts a new life, and the place where you wrote your first poem begins to glow in your mind's eye. It is as if gold has been discovered. When someone deeply listens to you, your bare feet are on the earth, and a beloved land that seemed distant is now at home within you. Hmm. Someone deeply listens to you, your bare earth, and a beloved land that's seen distant, is now at home within you.
0: Hmm. Beautiful.
2: So that really goes to the heart of what we're talking about as healing, because poetry does that when you both speak poems and also when you write them. I know for myself when i'm writing poetry it isn't necessarily a choice it's usually something i have to do um, because something is bubbling up out of me and i've been doing it long enough now that i kind of know when the signs are there and i have to just sit down and do it and it's usually now it's a daily practice it's part of my spiritual practice uh, to write a poem a day or to to get some writing done each day so the writing as in the process of writing, but in an interactive mode, one of the things I love about poetry is that it is interactive and it demands people listening to it and hearing it, in in actually even in the formation of poems. Because I know I have a critique group and and we we critique each other's work, you know, several times a month. And in that process, I think the poem is pretty good and it's pretty much there, and then we'll take it to the critique group, and they'll pull it apart, and they'll say, well, what about this? What about that? What about this? And and then when I go back to rewrite it, I have their ideas, and I can lay them out kind of like a smorgasbord of what I might want to do, but in the actual process of writing it, I can keep what I've done or or let it go, and, and I think that that's that's part of the process that I love about poetry, too, is that it's so interactive. But when you read that poem, what came to me was um, how the act of being heard is such a thing that we skip over in our culture today. You know, we don't really completely engulf listening. Um, People are in a hurry. They want to do things quickly. And and poetry makes you slow down. It makes you really listen and receive the words that are being spoken. Absolutely. So so when I we've touched on this a little bit, but um, how can poetry and poem making help a person improve their capacity to listen, uh, in the process of of hearing other people's poetry? Yeah, I think that. <clears throat> I'm imagining you address this in your workshops and oh, things that you do.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's really up front at the very beginning because we're not, in my workshops, we're not there to critique.
0: Mm-hmm. It's, however, I feel that the more we can develop a
3: capacity to really deeply listen, the more that actually it creates a space for that person I'm speaking themselves to get more deeply in tune with what they are really needing to say. Mm. And, and it becomes a generative act. So not just for that particular poem, but for perhaps what the poem is offering to his or herself, that mm-hmm. they can discover something that they wouldn't have gotten if someone had immediately said, well, I think you ought to do this and mm-hmm. put up this sign and go there. And mm-hmm. and so the idea that, um, that we are um, sort of creative people is given much more um, sort of uh, gravity and weight, right?
2: And, and being, you know, being uh, human beings gives us an opportunity then to be more uh, interactive in the world rather than rushing through it all the time. Is right, know. and
3: and sometimes also the things that we would think are are like. There's a wonderful poem that I use in my work. It's a short poem by Charles Olson. Mm-hmm. And um, it's called these days. Mm-hmm. And um, whatever you have to say, leave the roots on. Let them dangle, and the dirt, just to make clear where they come from. Mm-hmm. These days. So, and what I want people to imagine is, I'm not. It's like here I am working with, say, you know, prisoners, men who are prisoners at a hospice. They're hospice, training to be hospice volunteers at California Men's Colony Prison or they're, they're uh, um, adults who are at the uh, cancer support community and they're dealing with, um, you know, threatening life-threatening cancers, mm-hmm. or their young teens who have dealt all their lives with severe, moderate to severe disabilities, say at Blythedale Children's Hospital, um, or they're, um, say, um, uh, a clinical pastoral education people in clinical going daily into the rooms of people who are quite ill mm-hmm. and their families who are in distress
0: mm-hmm. and
3: how, how can they learn to be with themselves in a ways that that give, um, give them support and mm-hmm. help them to sort of hold what they're experiencing mm-hmm. So
2: do you have something I,
3: I have you? this idea of um, listening um, it's something that I've focused on for a long time but a wonderful writer Brenda Ulan, U-E-L-A-N-D, Brenda Ulan, wrote a book in the 1930s called How to Write. Mm-hmm. And um, in that book, she talks about listening quite a bit. And is a wonderful passage about listening being a, a generative act. Mm-hmm. Like, you're listening to me right now, and and my listening to your questions and to what you're saying, Robin, actually is um, it's not just a, an act of sort of uh, respect. I mean, there is respect there, but there's also something that that makes possible something we maybe didn't expect. So Mm
0: -hmm.
3: Brenda Ulland says, listening is a magnetic and strange thing, a creative force. When people really listen to each other in a quiet, fascinated attention, the creative found inside each of us begins to spring and cast up new thoughts and unexpected wisdom. Mm -hmm. Now... You know that's not something you're gonna hear on you know cable news mm-hmm. uh, you know that you know necessarily not necessarily in academic settings but but it may be the foundation of what actually allows us to to make room for for one another in ways mm-hmm. that are you know so needed these
2: days you know I'll say something interesting yeah. too in response to that about how um when I was going back to school just recently and you know in my 50s, dealing with um, uh, the academic, I was kind of petrified to go back because I'd heard, you know, horror stories about um, MFA programs uh, and how they, you know, tear apart your work and everything. And, of course, that has been uh, part of the reputation of uh, Iowa is that they've been very ruthless with their students. They're much better now. but And I was so impressed the first that we had in the academic group Uh, that i was in you know 30 or 40 poets that were going to be going through this program the director of the program stood up and said i want to tell you how we critique here and uh and i was like and the first thing she said is we're kind to each other and we listen and we don't trash the professor and we don't do this and this is this is the way that we critique. We listen for what are the qualities that are positive in the poem, and then we might ask, add our suggestions for changing the poem or making it better. And um, But we do the first, we do the, you know, what she was saying was like a sandwich of positive compliments and um, critique, and then more positive compliments about where this poem could go or what's the potential for it which was such an entirely different yeah. um, uh, experience than I'd had um, in some programs or in some other situations. But I, I like the fact that you don't critique in the work that you do in Poetic Medicine, I, that you're, what you're doing is you're listening to the poem and receiving it, no matter what the language or how flowery well, well, or... Well, I mean, <coughs> it's, it's, um, you know, things that we will do, like we can mirror back
3: resonate for us. Right. And or we may ask questions, open and honest questions, that right. reflect something about the how we're receiving the honest question, something that uh Parker Palmer, a wonderful man Parker Palmer does in his work with mm-hmm. circles of trust and courage to teach, is you don't it's a question you don't know the answer for. Mm-hmm. You're not trying to direct somebody to mm-hmm. think about something in particular. Um and so how can we unpack what's in the poem? Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to come back to just a sense of that we that we don't know what's there
0: oh, until right. we
3: really are with it,
0: mm-hmm. and
3: I think that's what George Starbuck meant by takes a long time of getting to know somebody.
0: Mm-hmm. There's 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 another poem, Robin, that is yeah. I'll say along with
3: um, that these days poem. Whatever you have to say, I've used that poem these days. Whatever you have to say, leave the roots on, let them dangle and the dirt, just to make them for. 25 years, mm-hmm. and I'll always ask, well, what do you get from it, What and and there's similar things that people will say about that, don't have to pretty it up, don't have to make it nice, I'm not here to please somebody else, Right. I can leave it raw,
0: mm-hmm.
3: and so that's where it's really a different world than the sort of trying to write to get an award or to get published
0: mm-hmm. or
3: be part of a school or... Get mm-hmm. approval from others. It's a very different kind of approach. Mm-hmm. But, but, but the thing about that poem is that I think it's about seventeen words. Is that I'm still getting new things that people will say of how it speaks to them. It is absolutely amazing to me mm-hmm. that 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 it's not just one or seven or ten things. It's dozens of things mm-hmm. that that poem communicates, mm-hmm. and so. Why wouldn't it be so for someone else's poem? That what it's in there could be could speak to them, and and part of the ideas for me is to slow down.
0: Mm-hmm. Don't have
3: to rush to make something quote better. Yeah, because I may not. There's so this other poem that helps with that. It's a poem written by Barbara McInerney.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: and it's, the poem is called As They Are, and it goes like this. And what if my words, my fledgling poems, were children, were toddlers trying first steps, trying first steps, tumbling, skinning knees with glee, splashing mud, making a mess, discovering themselves? Would I hold them at arm's distance, disown them, hide them, say what I imagine others will think, that after all they really aren't very good? And could that be a way of protecting them? shielding, holding back. I know the mockery odd children can face. Instead, could I let them ramble along weedy paths only they know, lean close to hear them whisper secrets, learn what they need from me. Could I love them as they are, give them room to grow, a chance to shine? Hmm. That third standard and could that be a way of protecting them, shielding, holding back? The sense of that I meet mean, again and again the resistance that people have, the fear they have sometimes of being able to express themselves.
0: Right.
3: Is because of this, this creative place in us is so much more important than re- recognizing. I mean I asked people when they took a spelling tests in fourth grade, you remember when you're when you took your spelling test, did you repair or not prepare? Did you cheat? You know, did you put it on your wrist? You know, um, your words. And then but uh, before you took your test, did your teacher just ask you, which words on our list do you just enjoy the sound of? You know, do you just enjoy like Skylark or, or scrumptious?
0: hmm
3: You know, bungle.
0: <laughs> Isn't that a
3: great word bungle? hmm I mean, and what I'm talking about is just the pleasure of language and the, right. the sounds, and, and that's what we really enjoy as children. And I think I mean, the spelling test is one place where we begin to oh, words are like electric fence. you know I'm going right. to get like charged from that you know red line or so So the idea of, of playfulness and pleasure is another important part of safety, playfulness, pleasure, a sense of non-judgment. To me, in the long run,
0: mm-hmm.
3: in the long run, that creates a much more stable and lasting creative environment. Mm-hmm. And and then individuals, if individuals when they've gotten their when their roots have been really fed, and they say, well, I'd really like to be able to look at this in a in a, another way, and I'd like your opinion on my writing,
0: mm-hmm.
3: you know, or your sort of feedback. I think that that can really be useful but mm-hmm. but in a way i think we we um end up sort of shutting off the possibilities
2: right right i agree i agree and i uh, i think that what we ne- that what happens a lot of times in academic programs is there's such a push to produce mm-hmm. and, and um you know you know, you need 10 poems this week or you need a poem a day or whatever. And I think that's important if you're going to be a professional poet. Um, but I think if you're going to be someone who's enjoying your life, you know, the pleasure principle, you you have to love it. You know, you have to love poetry in order to want to do it in any case. But I think that, that uh, allowing just the pleasure of the words and pleasure of the language to come in means so much in both poetic medicine or in an academic setting. So we're going to take a a little break again and come back, and then I'd like to talk more about some of your books because you've got a couple of great ones here, and we'll be right back. here today on Evolve uh, with your host Robin Turtle listening and I'm here with my guest John Fox who is the president of the Institute of Poetic Medicine in Palo Alto and who's been all around the world um, teaching uh, and people uh, as a poetry therapist. Uh, he's an adjunct professor at uh, C.I.I.S., California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco. He teaches at JFK University in Berkeley, the Institute for Transpersonal Psychology, or now Sophia University, and Holy Names University in Oakland. John's the author of two books, Poetic Medicine, The Healing Art of Palm Making, and has been featured on a PBS documentary, documentary called Healing Words, Poetry in Medicine. Uh, his first book, was called, what was it called, Finding What You Didn't Lose, and uh, it's still in print, which is a great um, coup, actually, (laughs) when you can have a book in print for a while, it's great, so more about your books, John, because um, I I was taken with uh, poetic medicine as, uh, certainly as, Something that's important to me about how it has healed me and how it has helped m- my life and I'd love to hear about um about your books and tell me sure. a little more yeah sure um
3: back in the early um, about nineteen ninety three um I was hired to teach a course in the Graduate School of Psychology at John F Kennedy University, and i um had uh, put together a course reader. That was going to be used in that. I sort of went overboard. I mean, the course reader was about 350 pages. Oh my God! I
0: mean,
3: however, you know I, I'm, I think, you know, I think Blake said something: about overabundance is actually, you know, can be a great boon. And so, <laughs> so what I did was I thought I'd show my course reader to my friend who's on my uh, uh, board on the Institute for Poetic Medicine, Jim Fadiman, long, long-time friend, one of the founders, or sort of he helped Bob Fraser start what yes. with ITP now known as Sophia.
0: Yes. But um
3: so I showed this course reader to Jim and the first thing he said and found looking at it was that you should make a copy of this and send it to Jeremy Tarcher who's the p- publisher of my books Jeremy P. Tarcher. And mm-hmm. um, so what Jim didn't know is about 8 months previous to that I had sent poems out of the blue to Jeremy Tarcher because I liked the books he published even though he didn't publish poetry and about a this sheaf of poems off to Jeremy Tarcher eight weeks, eight months before I showed Jim this course reader, Jeremy called me and he said, You know, I we don't publish poetry, poetry doesn't sell, but I like your poems and I'm gonna about to go on vacation, I'm gonna take them with me. And so that was nice to have mm-hmm. the publisher call and then and then we had a long conversation about poetry as healer. So this is about nineteen ninety two or three something about them, and um so and i learned at that time that uh jeremy at that time was married to sherry lewis
0: yes who's the
3: puppeteer and lamb chop and right. when i was growing up i had puppets and
2: she was my heroine she, when well, i was she, a young
3: person she, she was like i remember watching her in 1962
2: on Yes, yeah, she was the sesame <laughs>
3: that? with her ponytail and her red hair and her Puppets. So, but anyway, Jer- Jeremy and I had a wonderful conversation, and he said, if you ever want a writing about that, let me know. Mm-hmm. Well, I was going through something my and personal in my life at that time was very difficult, and I didn't immediately just jump at the chance. I wrote down the name of his assistant, and so then it was eight months later where I showed this course reader to Jer. I mean, to Jim, and he said, you should send it to Jeremy Darger. So, so well, guess what? And so then we did. I sent the table of contents, and Jeremy. Got in contact said, I'd like to talk to you about doing a book, and so that sort of got that going. Mm-hmm. And then he asked me to describe what my purpose was in this book, and essential, essentially, it was to say that there's a poet that's naturally in us that is sort of come, we come with, and so, but we kind of get it taught out of us. Mm-hmm. So, so then, in order to sort of show him this, I sent this little. A quote, four lines from a poem by E.E. E. Cummings,
0: mm-hmm.
3: and the poem goes, The trick of finding what you didn't lose, existing is tricky, but to live is a gift, the teachable imposture of always arriving at that place you never left.
0: Mm-hmm. So
3: that first line, the trick of finding what you didn't lose. So when I sent this letter to Jeremy, the first thing he did was write back and said, Well, let's call it. Finding What You Didn't Lose. Mm-hmm. You can always take a line from a poem if you're going to make it a title, a book title. Right,
2: right. You don't even need permission to do it. Oh, really? That's good so to know. That so began, that was
3: your first book. That became the first
2: book. Uh-huh. And then the second book, Poetic Medicine. It was like,
3: <clears throat> I kept writing and writing, and there was a, there's, Finding What You Didn't Lose is about making poetry part of your daily life.
0: Mm-hmm. And it
3: has the undercurrent, or sort of the, sort of the you know, the explicit idea that poetry is to be healing, but it doesn't, it's not completely about that. It's about making poetry part of your life. But there was one chapter in Chapter 8 called The Healing Pulse of Poetry, and I just kept writing and writing and writing and writing that chapter. Finally, my, my editor, the wonderful Laura golden Bellotti, threw up her hand and said, stop, stop. And, and Jeremy even called me and said, you can't keep doing this. So he said, we'll just do another book. Mm. So 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 that became... Started on poetic medicine.
0: Uh,
2: that became
3: that became poetic
2: medicine. Uh-huh. And that was
3: much more focused on the the stories and experience I've had working with people and using poetry in a healing way. Mm-hmm. Um, do we have time? Um,
2: yeah, we've got a few more minutes. We've got about five minutes left.
3: Well, this is so I feel like I want to give a direct experience of someone using this. This is right in the book. It's in the chapter called "When God Sighs," mm-hmm. and it's really a chapter about loss. And death, and that um, sort of terrain that we really don't have many answers for, and that poetry can be helpful to because it provides a sense of so much paradox in those in those times. And poetry, one of its I think, holds paradox in ways that the rational mind, generally speaking, can't can't handle, but the poem can. Mm-hmm. So, so this is the, um, a poem by a man named Bill Stephenson. And it's called Square Black Box. Square Black Box, tiny, lidded, empty, long-time companion. I'd ask people to think about some object they had that was dear to them. So this is
0: mm-hmm.
3: Square Black Box, tiny, lidded, empty, long-time companion. Hard edged in my pocket. A gift remaining to me, though my wife has died, who was its giver. So long a companion, the lid has scratched dim. Hear me, relic and reliquary, holder of memory even now holder of her memory, even now, hold my emptiness in yours, and from your darkness bring me the empties, that emptiness is truly infinite space where all things are possible, where scratched and faded flowers blossom bright again, and where lost love is to be found again, and held in the grasp, as safe and close, as my fingers have when they hold tight to your four corners. And, um, he said about writing this poem, the memories that had dimmed were suddenly vivid again, just as imagination had brought back the original colors of the flowers on the box lid. Memories of happy times of love came flooding back from their depths. I had, to, I had thought to contain only pain and regret. The poem flowed into my notebook page naturally and unstoppably from this gift of, rec- of realization. And that came from just a walk down a path... During workshops that I was giving at Omega Institute, and so Bill, instead of discussing what reaches him, I mean, you know, I'm not going to, there's there's another place, and that was heard in the community of the people Mm -hmm. there, such an important way to share our stories.
0: Mhm. Mhm.
3: Mm-hmm. Robin, would you want to read something?
2: Well, I, I would I was just looking at what I um, had in my book uh, Heart Path because I do have some poetry in it as well, and I was uh finding this one. Um it's called Rose Window Rose Window During the Black Plague, before medicine as we know it, families laid their sick ones beneath the colored windows of cathedrals than we, that first there is the pierced heart, then the rearranging of light rays by that unseen hand as the sun moves across the glass. One must go inside, all the way in, surrendering all the broken pieces, taking long draws on straws of light, soaking in all colors, until you revive or move on within the stained glass sun.
0: Mm-hmm. That
3: line, I just mirror back this line, until you revive or move on.
2: Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm.
3: Like sometimes we sort of stop and take in a, a deep breath, and sometimes
2: where it's like the flow, we just continue to flow. Right, right. I, I'd heard this, that people used to lay their, uh, in the medieval mm-hmm. times, they would lay their people that were sick into the cathedrals under these windows mm-hmm. and when i heard that i thought what an act of faith you know that they somehow knew the colors were good for their family members and some people got healed yeah. and, and 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 others died but um at least especially during the black plague which was such a horrible time but i, I thought of that and and it's a little bit like what happens with poetry for me because when you go really deeply into yourself and you pull together those broken fragments and then out comes something beautiful it's really quite a, an extraordinary yeah. experience and, so. and
3: we can sort of like a like a stained glass window what, what is it called when you sort of use when you sort of piece them together in some way yeah
2: i make a stained glass window yeah I create the art of it yeah yeah, it's quite beautiful. Well, and you have a personal story, too, about how you you were healed by poetry. Um, and I, I didn't know if you wanted to touch on that or save it for another show.
3: Well, I, I think, yes, um, <clears throat> I grew up with a medical problem with my right leg that involved being in the hospital num- many times,
0: uh-huh. and having
3: a number of surgeries, mm-hmm. like seven, mm-hmm. between the time I was four and a half and 18.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And... Writing was an important way for me to make it through, for me to understand what was going on, mm-hmm. to really find a way to hold that paradox,
0: mm-hmm.
3: um, to be. Also, this is important. Sort of revived. You mentioned the word "revive" in your mm-hmm. poem, but by by beauty.
0: Mm-hmm. And even though
3: I had to deal with some things were not very, you know, were really difficult and painful. Um, I realized the poem gave me a way to tap into. Both sort of beauty and connection in a way that, that normal conversation wouldn't do.
0: Mm-hmm. So it
3: held both could hold both the pain, but also a sense of sense of connection. Mm-hmm. So so that because when I was eighteen, I had to be faced with the decision to have my right leg below the knee amputated,
0: mm-hmm.
3: and that began a whole sense of being able to understand what sort of intimately what loss is about and mm-hmm. what grief is about.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And although at 18, it was um, no, not something I needed a year to really get to, um, to find some deeper sense of meaning about it. Um, right. But right. the poems and the poem making was a, was a way to do that.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: I remember, um, you know, I met Elizabeth Kubler-Roth in 1976, good fortune. Wow. And she invited me to come to a retreat she was giving. Mm-hmm. And I remember to that retreat, I took this this hardback copy of poems by Rilke and um, I still remember the gold emboss of the print on the spine of the book of poems by Rilke and I don't think I knew at 20 that Rilke was sort of the poet about sort of sort of coming through Mm -hmm. and yet something in me knew that that it was it was it was a companion
0: Mm -hmm. it was a place
3: where I could come through Mm
2: -hmm. do you know this one by Rilke it goes. Everything is close to my face,
3: Oh. and
2: everything close to my face is stone.
3: Boy, do I know that one. <laughs>
2: this
3: is more than. Recently, I had a great loss of my of my sister Holly, mm-hmm. and when I wrote to people about about where I was just a week after her passing, um, I used the exact those exact lines.
2: Oh wow. Wow. What, yeah. What I was feeling. Yeah, yeah. I love the, the the next lines, in that are so powerful to me. Mm-hmm. It's um, uh, uh, you're. You'll be the. Oh, break, you yeah. Be you would be the break, master.
3: Break, break, in. Break, break in. So that so your great grief cry happens to me. I, I don't
2: know the line. you're. Yeah, that yeah. Robin, yeah, I'm not. See, um. Uh, you be the master, make yourself fierce, break through, then your great grief cry will happen to you, Good. will happen to me, or will happen to you, and your great transforming will happen to me.
0: Yeah.
3: Something, yeah,
2: something like that. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing
3: about poetry as healer is that I wasn't, and I, I'm only maybe beginning to be ready for those lines.
2: Mm. But
0: but
3: those earlier lines were, right. were what I needed.
2: Everything and, close to my face is stone. Yeah. So, yeah. So
3: again, that sense of slowing down. Right. But if if people want to find out more, they're welcome to go to my website poeticmedicine.org. Me at john at poeticmedicine.org. There's a training program that began um, last year. It's in its it's that it's in its beginning stage, but it's going really well. And if people are interested in learning more about that, they could I welcome them to write to me.
2: Okay. Great. Well, thank you, John. It's been a pleasure talking to you today, and I'm so delighted Robin, to you. have this uh, time. And um, glad that we got the interview, uh, got to interview and talk to each other about this topic because it's such a, a near and dear one to my heart. So I thank you. And um, this is the radio show Evolve with your host Robin White Turtle Lisney. And uh, I appreciate your cooperation and thank you for listening. And we'll see you next month
0: thank you for joining us this program was brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E we hope you enjoyed the show This is Deb Carosella. Please join us next time on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E for Convergence with John Carosella, Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Evolve was brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. i